Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who is dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. We are in the midst of a series where we're looking at seven letters that Jesus sends to the church. There are seven letters for specific literal churches in various cities scattered around Ephesus and a region known as Asia Minor, that being Turkey today. But beyond a word for those churches, seven in particular indicates to us that it's a greater word for the church as a whole throughout the centuries. A church, a message for our church, a message for you, a message for all churches, a message from Jesus. It's pretty radical. You know, a lot of people will talk about, well, Jesus never, he never wrote anything. Well, have you ever read Revelation 2 and 3? Because he did. And he sent these seven letters for our exhortation, our admonishment, for us to learn and to grow and to be warned of things that could very well mess us up, trip us up, cause us to fall away. Now, as we've discussed, there are two things that you kind of have to look at in order to fully unpack everything tucked into this particular letter. And that is that you got to look at the context of the letter from a historical angle, as well as the backdrop of the letter in regards to that local city. Now, last week, and looking at Ephesus, we started first with the backdrop, and then we went to the context. We're going to reverse it this morning. We're going to start with some context, and that being what this letter to the Church of Smyrna represents in regards to the entirety of church history. And that would be the persecuted church. We've mentioned this. There are interesting aspects to these letters, but the seven do represent loose periods or movements within church history. Ephesus, as we looked at last Sunday, represented the post-apostolic church, that second and third generation of believers. Smyrna represents a persecuted church. Now, most scholars would agree that the persecuted church began approximately 100 AD. It's almost a universal opinion in regards to when this period of church history began, 100 AD. People debate when it ended. Some say it began at 100 AD and then it ended with the Edict of Milan in 313. It can be debated. Personally, I don't like trying to set a date or a time at all because classifying this particular period of history as only being the persecuted church becomes problematic for this simple reason. Beginning with the age of the apostles and continuing all the way to today, we see that there has always been a faithful remnant of the church under the threat of persecution. Every generation of the church 
has had a corrupt church, a fallen church, a messed up church, but has always had a faithful church. And it's those people that tend to be those most persecuted. Now, for the sake of time, c316.tv, you'll notice that there's a place that you can access all of the sermon notes for this morning's message. It's there to enhance your learning experience. Now, for the sake of time, I've included two links at the bottom of the page for you to study on your own. First is an online copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And what this particular book will illustrate is it examines church history and all of the time periods of persecution throughout church history. And as you read through it, it's pretty obvious that the persecuted church has always existed. It's hard to limit it to specifically one era. Beyond that, you will also note a section of the Bible study that had to get cut for time's sake, where we build the case that if you had to pick a time period to classify as the persecuted church based solely on numbers of Christians persecuted, let's say that was your plumb line, your threshold, number of Christians persecuted would dictate this persecuted church. And you were to take every season or era or, or generation of church history to try to figure out, well, which, which one is the church of Smyrna? I think the case can actually be made that the last hundred years, that today we might in actuality be living in what should be classified as the persecuted church. The numbers are unbelievable when you place it in context. It's been speculated, and I can't get on a tangent, but over half of Christians who have ever been martyred have occurred within the last hundred years. Over half. Today, we're living in what could very well be considered the persecuted church. Now, the context. The persecuted church kind of being a broader examination than from 100 AD to 313 AD. While Jesus is writing to a literal church in the city of Smyrna during the first century, experiencing incredible persecution. In a broader, more historical sense, this letter, the subject of which we just read, should be seen as Jesus's admonishment to the faithful remnant ever present throughout church history, always under the threat of persecution. So there's our context. Now let's set the backdrop, that being the church in Smyrna, during the first century, the city itself. Let's profile it. Smyrna was located on the western coast of Turkey. It's approximately 35 miles north of the city of Ephesus. Today, it's known as the town of Izmir. It's actually the only city of the seven Jesus writes to that still exists. Not only did Smyrna have a strategic harbor But the city was built by Alexander the Great or rebuilt by Alexander the Great to have wide, straight roads. It was a model for city planning, which made it ideal for the transport of goods. You couple that with the fact that Smyrna was surrounded by fertile farmland where they produced wine and an herb known as myrrh, became a very potent spice, was very wealthy. Smyrna was known as the crown of Asia, it's, it's actually the word myrrh is where we get Smyrna from. So it's, it was known as the chief exporter of this precious uh, ointment. Now seeing the inevitable fall of the Grecian empire, Smyrna was unique and that she was one of the first Hellenistic cities 
to pledge its loyalties to a growing empire, that being the Romans. In 195 BC, Smyrna cemented their relationship with Rome, and not Greece, by building a temple they dedicated to the spirit of Rome. And as such, throughout her history, Smyrna would remain at the forefront of what was known as the imperial cult. By the time of Christ, they had actually moved from worshiping the spirit of Rome to deifying and worshiping former Caesars. Now fast forward to the end of the first century. The context of this city in which John, Jesus, is writing to. And the rise of a man named Emperor Domitian. According to history, while Nero had already instigated an initial wave of persecution, Peter died as a result of it, the Apostle Paul died as a result of it, it was not until Domitian's reign that Christian persecution reached a zenith. Because Nero was certifiably nuts, like he was a known madman, there was no logic to kind of anything he did, but there was no logic to his persecution of the Christians. He needed a scapegoat for why Rome was in decline, why half the city had burned. And so he just blamed Christians. Christians were kind of during that time blamed for anything. There was a natural disaster, they blamed the Christians. The economy turned, they blamed the Christians. Like Nero was sporadic, crazy, and his persecution of the church modeled that. We're told he would just take Christians for the fun of it, dip them in wax, light them on fire to illuminate his garden parties. He was barbaric. And yet, what made Domitian so much more dangerous than Nero is that unlike Nero, Domitian was sane. And thus his persecution of the church was deliberate and systematic. In addition to targeting church leaders, our example being the Apostle John, who had been arrested by Domitian, had been sentenced to be executed. He was executed, uh, was sentenced to be executed by being boiled alive in oil. Um, like a bad piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken, he bobbed and didn't boil. And that kind of freaked everyone out, so they exiled him to the island of Patmos. That's actually why he is here on the island of Patmos receiving this revelation. Domitian targeted... So it's, a, it's a really twisted mental picture, isn't it? Yeah, okay, I got you. But Domitian specifically targeted Christian leadership, kind of thinking, well, you could kill the snake by, the snake by just cutting off the head. And yet, when the Christian community continued to thrive and continued to grow, he became the first Caesar to do something different. So at this point, we've had worship of the spirit of Rome. And we've had the worship in the deifying of former dead Caesars, but Domitian was the first who demanded personal worship as a test of loyalty and allegiance to Rome. During this time, towards the end of the first century, failure to worship Caesar would bring about its severe economic consequences for believers, and in many instances, certain death. William Barclay wrote this concerning this time period. He wrote, Emperor worship had begun as spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. But towards the end of the first century, in the days of Domitian, the final steps 
were taken and Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, the Roman citizen had to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the Godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. All that the Christian had to do was burn that pinch of incense, say Caesar is Lord, receive their certificate and go away and worship as they please. Don't remember, uh, Rome was polytheistic so that you could worship Jesus, but you still had to worship Rome. But as Barclay says, that is precisely what the Christians would not do. They would give no man the name Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And thus they experienced during this period of time, incredible persecution. Now there were cities and it should be noted that didn't exactly enforce Domitian's edict um, stringently. There were pockets where persecution was not as intense, but going all the way back to the origin in regards to Smyrna, because they had set up this temple, they had become a center of imperial cult worship. In Smyrna, they took what Domitian was asking very, very seriously. Once again, for the sake of time, uh, there's an, an amazing story of the actual bishop of Smyrna uh, during this time period, more than likely the angel in which the church had been written or the messenger in which the, church, uh, the letter had been written, uh, the bishop, the, the pastor of this church during this time, he had actually been a disciple of the apostle John, a man named Polycarp, is an incredible witness in regards to uh, not just the persecution that existed in the first century, but also the incredible Christian witness that was demonstrated when saints refused to capitulate stood for their faith, died noble deaths, but God was glorified in the process. At the bottom of the page, I just kind of copied and pasted a, a, an extended profile that David Guzik ends up writing. You can check that out more on your own. So we got the context, got the backdrop. I hope that helps. Now let's get to Jesus's commendation. Like the good things, the things he's gonna commend them for in regards to this church in Smyrna, as well as the persecuted church. And like he did, and his commendations of the church of Ephesus. Jesus begins, look at it. He says, I know your works. Now imagine that for a moment. Here was a church that was experiencing unimaginable hardship. Like the kind of persecution that you and I don't understand, that we have a hard time relating to. Um, like we feel like Christian persecution is when someone's, strikes up an argument on Facebook. And we're like, I'm being persecuted because this person wants to argue with me. Like that's not, that's not Christian persecution. Uh, what these people were going through was legitimate bona fide persecution. And yet in their hardship, this church refused to allow their trying circumstances to deter them from their heavenly calling. Like they were being persecuted, but they still served. They served each other, they served the community. Jesus says, I know your works. I know it's tough, but I know your works. I know what you're doing and you're doing good things. You, you can imagine that this church took Jesus's command in Matthew 5 verse 44, seriously, they took it to heart when Jesus said to love your enemies, to bless those who curse you, to do good to those who hate you, and to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. They took this seriously. It's, it's amazing to me that the persecuted church 
possesses this lasting legacy as still being a serving church. And no matter what may come, no matter what persecution may come, never allow your circumstances to deter you from doing good, from your calling. Notice Jesus also says, I know your works, I know your tribulation and poverty. In the Greek, this word tribulation or philipsis literally means a pressing together from the outside. Like the word itself presents this idea of a large stone being used to crush grapes in order to release the juice or to crush an herb to release the fragrant oil. This was a picture these people, because of their wine industry and myrrh industry, were very familiar with. This pressing, this crushing from outside influences. As we've noted, the political climate in Smyrna had created a set of crushing circumstances for this church. This tribulation, it was real, it was tangible. These believers, these Christians were experiencing this pressing. They were being pressed into a decision whereby their convictions would carry severe consequences. No longer could this church in Smyrna obey the laws of the land. In this moment, because what they were asking violated the laws of God, standing for Jesus now made them outlaws in their community. They were renegades to a degree. Now understand, refusing to declare, to take this pinch of incense and declare Caesar as Lord, refusing to pledge their loyalty to Rome, it produced an immediate result and that of economic persecution, their poverty. Now keep in mind poverty, the poverty Jesus is referring to using this particular word. It's, and it's not like the poverty we think of in America. You know, we have a, 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 a poverty line and you can be in poverty in America, right? I mean, it's bad, but you got a home Healthcare, food, a cell phone, probably even an HDTV. Like that's what, I mean, and man, that's roughing it. I mean, we only have one TV, heaven forbid, right? It's a cell phone. I can't, I can't, like there's buttons on it. What, what's that? That's not the kind of poverty being communicated here. That was not the economic poverty this tribulation was producing. Instead, the word itself literally means abject poverty, absolute destitution, literally beggary is what the word means. It speaks of one who has absolutely nothing at all. Because these Christians stood for Christ, they were no longer allowed to participate in the marketplace. Not having this certificate meant that they couldn't do business. They couldn't participate in the marketplace. Their property was confiscated. Their membership and the all-important trade guilds were, was revoked. Even their money was really worthless because no one could buy or sell with them. Once again, they're outlaws. They're now this lower class. They're totally destitute. And if this tribulation and poverty weren't enough, Jesus continues, look at it. He says, I know the blasphemy 
of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This word blasphemy in the Greek, it means to speak against one's good name for the specific purpose of causing injury. If we were to translate it more effectively into English, we would use the word slander. And who was it speaking blasphemy against this church? Jesus says it was those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Now, in, in a very literal sense, historical sense, it's, it's likely Jesus is referencing an actual synagogue in Smyrna, filled with Jews who were kind of using the opportunity of this church's misfortune to kind of kick them while they were down. They were speaking evil on top of the reality they were suffering. Kind of a dirty, low move. But in a broader sense, I think what Jesus is referring to, what he's speaking to, is a persecution of his faithful church by those who claim to represent God, but aren't. And throughout history, the sad reality of, of church history is that who is often the instigator of the persecution of the faithful church? Yes, there are instances where it's the pagans or it's the Muslims or whatever, but by and large, it's the church itself that ends up persecuting the faithful remnant. And so I think in this context, Jesus is not just addressing this wicked synagogue, calls it the synagogue of Satan. People, these Jews claiming to represent God, but they didn't. But in a broader sense, he's just speaking to the reality that there are those who claim to represent God, but in actuality, they're a meeting place of Satan and they're persecuting my beloved. Now, between Jesus' commendation and his counsel, which we'll look at in just a moment, it's important to point out that he provides no criticisms. Like Jesus has nothing critical to say to this church. Five of the seven, I mean, Jesus unloads with both barrels. But in this church, in this instance, in writing to this church, he's got no critical word at all. Only commendations and counsel, but nothing critical. As a matter of fact, Jesus only seeks to encourage this church. You know, I've found, and I don't know if you can relate to this or not. I think you can. But in the midst of our own persecution or trial, temptation, even discouragement or pain, in the midst of our suffering, we've all suffered, have you found that it's so easy for the Christian in that moment to wonder if somehow Jesus has forgotten about them? Like, have you ever, have you, can you sympathize with that? Like in the midst of your moment, whatever that moment might be, have you ever had the thought, dude, where are you? Like, hello, do you not see me? Are you doing something else? Have you gotten distracted? Come on, wake up, I'm suffering. You've forgotten about me. And because this is a very common reaction, a common approach, a common problem, Jesus directly combats this notion or this tendency with two incredibly powerful words. We've actually mentioned them quite often, but he says over and over and over again, right? I know. I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the blasphemy. I know, and that is powerful, friend. In the Greek, this word idio for know, it's unique because it speaks to more than just the perception of sight. 
but rather to the understanding of experience. Like Jesus is not just telling these Christians that he knew of their suffering, that he was aware, that he got the memo, that the email blast had reached his desk. It's not that he just knew in an intellectual sense of their suffering. Jesus is making it clear by using this word no, that he sympathized with their suffering. It's more than just I know of, it's I sympathize with. And yet, as you know, just knowing, like the words I know in the ears of a sufferer is only meaningful if the person making the statement actually knows or has gone through a similar experience. To that point, I must point out that Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us concerning Jesus that, quote, we have a high priest who can sympathize. You might want to underline or highlight that word, circle it. Who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Like this word sympathize, it goes way beyond intellectual understanding. In the Greek, it literally means to be affected with the same feeling as another. It's to know. Sympathy, in a biblical sense, is more about the experiential understanding of one's heart than the intellectual understanding of one's mind. It's as though Jesus is telling this church in Smyrna, he's telling you and I, I know, like I know, I know your works. I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know, not just I know not just to be aware of, it's I know I've had an experience this morning. I hope you know that Jesus can say with absolute authority, I know your tribulation. And why can he say that? Because he has experienced the pressure and the crushing weight of tribulation himself. In the garden of Gethsemane, Literally, the garden of the wine press, of the olive press, this crushing, that's the garden itself. Jesus, as he's praying, as he's anticipating what's coming, as he's spending time with his heavenly father, we're told that it was such a crushing, such a pressing, that he swept droplets of blood. He knows what tribulation, what persecution what suffering looks like. You know, Jesus can say, I know your poverty. He can say that. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we're told that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know, Jesus can say, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and not. <laughs> Why? because he had firsthand experienced the slander of those who claimed to represent God, but didn't. Beyond this, please note, Jesus can say with total authority, I know the pain that's felt when you're betrayed by a friend. Like Jesus has been there, man. Betrayed by his best friends. Jesus can say, I know what it's like to be rejected by someone you, you love unconditionally. 
Yeah, Jesus might not have been dumped by his girlfriend. But every day people die rejecting his incredible love that was demonstrated on the cross on their behalf. Every day he deals with the rejection, a rejection we can't even wrap our brain around. Jesus, he personally knows what it's like to suffer loss. The the one time we're told Jesus wept was about what? The death of one of his best friends. And he wept knowing that in just a moment he was gonna call him forth but he still dealt with the human emotion of that loss, of that experience, that pain. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Maybe the most misunderstood person in history, he knows. He knows what it's like to be tempted, tempted to sin, tempted to pursue temporary pleasure versus an eternal satisfaction. Jesus knows what it's like to be treated unfairly or unjustly. Jesus can say, I know what it's like to be enduring through a tough marriage. You say, how how does he know that? He's married to us. I mean, consider it. He's got to deal with, we're his bride, and he's got to deal with us. He knows what it's like to have to be selfless, to prefer her above himself. Jesus can sympathize with all of it. You know, he can even say, and this, is, this struck me as very powerful. Jesus can even say, I know what it's like to feel as though God has forsaken you. He knows that feeling too. Why? Because on the cross, in the midst of his suffering, incredible suffering, he too asked the same question we so often. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, you know, being able to say, I know what it's like, ends up being rather meaningless. If the same person can't also say, I know how to overcome. You see, Jesus can say all of these things and more with the complete authority of I know. Why? Because there is no part of our pilgrimage, our experience, the human experience that he hasn't already endured himself and successfully navigated. Friend Jesus, he can say, I know what it's like, but I know how to be victorious because he's the victor over all. John 16, verse 33, he says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, (laughs) you will face tribulation. But be of good cheer. Why? Because you've overcome it? No, you can't. He says, because I have overcome the world. You know, I don't think it's an accident that before Jesus even utters the words, I know, he first reminds these Christians who he is and what he's done. Notice how he opens the letter. And I know we're, we're examining this in all different types of ways, We're not in order in any way. But notice how he starts the letter. He says, these things says, and then Jesus introduces himself as the first and the last. Like this phrase, the first and the last, it's a a title for God that speaks of his divine nature. 
It refers to his timelessness, the first, the last, his complete sovereignty. He knows the beginning and the end and the end from the beginning. I hope you know in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, it's critical, it's crucial that you remember that Jesus is more than just a mere man that knows. He is the most high God, sovereignly in control of every aspect of your life. The one saying, I know, is the one holding you in his hand. Beyond that, he says, these things says the first and the last, and then what? Who was dead and came to life. This phrase speaks of Jesus' strength. His strength over the most daunting of all enemies. Death. For it was by his resurrection that Jesus single-handedly gained victory over what is our greatest foe. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, please remember, Jesus is not just sovereignly in control, but he is much more mightier than anything you might be facing. If he conquered death, he can conquer whatever it is that's trying your circumstances. Look at his counsel. Well, Jesus, as we're working our way through the letter, has reminded them who he is the sovereign, victorious God who knows, before telling them what to do, Jesus reminds them of four key realities concerning persecution. So before he gets to his counsel, he just wants to remind them of a few things. First, persecution is inevitable. Like, like look at the letter again. I want to point out a couple things. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. It's interesting. And addressing this church experiencing persecution, he doesn't give them what we want, escape. Like Jesus doesn't come to them and promises deliverance. Hey, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I gotcha. It's all gonna be over take care of it. No, he doesn't promise deliverance. Instead, he actually gives them the exact opposite. He warns them, I know your tribulation. It's going to get worse. Huh? Like it's kind of one of those head scratching moments, like words of encouragement, Jesus, like where, where's that? And yet never forget that a vital component of the DNA of the church itself is persecution. Like persecution is a unavoidable part of the human experience. If you've come to Jesus anticipating your life circumstantially to get better, you've been lied to. Because in most instances, it doesn't get better. Following Jesus now places you as an arch enemy to the world and the power of darkness who's trying to to steal and to kill and to destroy. You've jumped to the other team. John 15, verse 20, Jesus said, remember the word I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. That's, that's a promise. James 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's not if or maybe 
or on the slight chance you happen to stumble across. No, when. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Philippians 1, 29, for to you it has been granted, it's been given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Like Paul's literally saying, Jesus gave you a gift that you're gonna suffer. 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened, but rejoice to the extent that you get to partake in Christ's sufferings. With the exception of Jude, every single New Testament writer speaks of persecution. It's unavoidable. It's inevitable. Secondly, persecution has a purpose. Look at what Jesus says. He says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Why? That you may be tested. Though Jesus is honest, that the origin of this coming persecution would be the devil. His foreknowledge of the coming event, it reveals to us something, doesn't it? Because, you know, he's powerful and strong and mighty. Because Jesus knows it's coming. He even knows who's it, who's it coming from. His knowledge of the event itself reveals, and this is a tough one, it reveals his allowance. I know it's coming. I okayed it. Like you see, God was allowing the devil to throw some of them into prison for the specific purpose that they may be tested. And, and, and don't, don't get that confused. Because in the Greek, this word tested, it's not like we consider a test. Like we take a test in order to reveal to ourselves and the teacher what we know or don't know, right? You get an A on the test, yay, I passed, I'm doing good. It's not a mark of achievement. It's not as though God gives us a test because he's really trying to figure us out. Like I just don't know if that person's faith is really legit or not. You know what? I'm gonna give them a test. Like, like, God, like God needs to provide a test to know we're morons. Like he looks at us and it's obvious. Yep, total morons. Instead, this word test, it means to make trial of. Like the, the idea is that the purpose of this persecution wasn't to test their faith, but to instead demonstrate or put on trial their faith for all the world to see. While Satan wanted to crush their witness, God allowed this persecution, why? Because he knew it would amplify their witness. This may explain why in spite of the slander, the tribulation and the poverty, Jesus declares, right, in the midst of it all, he reminds them, but you are rich. You know, as a direct result of persecution, this church, some of the byproducts, some of the good byproducts, it had been purified from the pretenders. They had been galvanized in their calling. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't be a wishy-washy Christian. You were either in or you were out. And if you were in, you counted the cost, which means they were serious about what they were doing. And the result, they wonderfully glorified Jesus by being faithful even to the end. You know, it's true 
that a church experiencing the fire of persecution often becomes a church on fire. And you know what happens when a church is on fire? She in turn sets the world on fire. The reality is that this crushing, this tribulation, it had released this sweet smelling, incredibly fragrant odor. Charles Spurgeon wrote, never did the church so prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. You know, if anything, Smyrna illustrates how appearances can be deceiving. Like this church might have had nothing, but Jesus said that they possessed everything. On the outside, they were in poverty, but on the inside, they were wealthy, which is interesting and should come as a surprise to faith teachers who present pain, suffering, persecution, and the lack of material possessions or wealth as evidence of God's displeasure. It's not evidence of Jesus's. To this point, David Guzik observes that, quote, the contrast between material poverty and spiritual riches of the Christians in Smyrna reminds us that there is nothing inherently spiritual in being rich. You know, how dangerous it is when we measure the effectiveness of the church using only the bottom line. This church was poor, but man, Jesus says they're rich. Thirdly, notice this persecution was inevitable, had a purpose, but it also had a limitation. Like Jesus says, you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, there's a lot of debate into what's being uh, referenced here by these 10 days of tribulation. There are some who claim that the 10 days represented 10 waves of Roman persecution. The problem with that is Nero's first wave, the initial wave had already come and gone, and now we're well into Domitian's second wave. The problem with that is Jesus is clear, right? that you will have tribulation 10 days. So it's in the future tense. He, he said, you'll have tribulation 10 days. You've already had two, there's eight. No, it's all future. See, it seems more likely, and this is my opinion. You can look into it. Like there's all kinds of weird theories on it. But it's my opinion, the more, more simplistic understanding is that this phrase 10 days was an idiom. It was an expression, an expression of speech that was used to just designate a short time. You'll find three instances that, that this exists in Scripture. Genesis 24, Job 19, Daniel 1, where this phrase, 10 days, is just used to describe a shortened period of time, which then becomes significant, right? Because what Jesus is letting this church know and reality of persecution is that while persecution has a purpose and is inevitable, persecution is not indefinite. Look then at his final lesson. Persecution has a reward. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. Like in this letter to the persecuted church, Jesus gets a little more specific in, in regards to what that reward is. He says, I will give you the crown of life and he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. When it comes to scripture, the Bible tells us that there are two deaths 
There's a physical death and there's a spiritual death. And while it's true, everyone, with the exception of the rapture, will experience the first death, the physical death, the death of the physical body, the same cannot be said for the second. D.L. Moody kind of had a way of summing it up that, that's spot on. I'll just steal it. He says, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. And what does he mean by that? If Jesus is your savior, if you've accepted his atonement for your sin, if his spirit is indwelling you, making you alive, then the reality is you'll only die once because you've been promised, what? The crown of life. Jesus said in John 11, verse 25, that I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though may, he may die, physical death, he shall live. There won't be a second. And yet, the flip side to this is if you reject Jesus as your savior, choosing to instead stand before God in your pride, to atone for your own sin. I hate to break it to you, but following your physical death will then come a spiritual death as you spend your eternity seeking to pay off a debt through an imperfect offering. For the wages of sin is death. Jesus, he's reminding this church, no matter how bad it gets, death, it's really not that bad. Life, eternity is our future, which is why he then counsels them. Look at it with two things. He says, do not fear and be faithful until death. You know, fear, fear is interesting. Fear in the biblical context is born out of the anticipation of losing something. I fear loss. That's the essence of fear. And yet, for the Christian, for the believer, what is there really to fear losing? Like, what can the world actually take from me? You see, we can be faithful until death. And we don't have to fear because death is not a moment of loss, but rather a moment of incredible gain and unspeakable glory. As the Apostle Paul would write to the Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philosophically, that's brilliant because to gain, it, it literally means more of the first. To live is Christ, to die is literally more of the very thing I was living for. And because for Paul, his life was to live as Christ, to die was more of Christ, the very thing he was living for. Like you take that equation and you plug in other pursuits of this life, you'll find they all fall short. And there's only one thing that can satisfy life. There's only one thing in life that can give death meaning, and that's Jesus. For to live is Christ and to die is more of what I was living for. So I don't even care, man. Paul's like, I'm in jail. You can take this mortal body, whatever. Get no power over me. You can kill me. You're not taking anything away from me. And he was victorious. He was strong and he was bold in the face of persecution because he had gotten his life in order. So what's the Lord saying to us? What is Jesus saying to us? I think there's two things. And we're gonna kind of go through them quickly for the sake of time. But first, I can't help but note that there is 
a coming persecution of the church in America. Like, I do believe that. And I'm not one of these weird, like, conspiratorial nuts. But honestly, well, I guess it's debatable. But, <laughs> but honestly, like, the winds in our culture have shifted. Like, there are storm clouds gathering on the horizon. A storm is coming our way. It might not be this year or the next, but it's, it's on the way. And what's interesting is like Smyrna, as I see it, our persecution, the persecution of the Christian church in America will be economic. It will be an economic persecution. You know, while the Bill of Rights protects the freedom of speech and that of religion, it doesn't seem to apply to the freedom of religious conviction voicing itself in the public square. You can believe it. You just need to shut up and not say anything about it. Like consider how visceral the reaction was to anyone who just voiced a concern that maybe the celebration of Bruce's transition to Caitlin wasn't something that was good, but actually maybe a dangerous precedent and an ineffective way of dealing with genuine gender dysmorphia that there's something really going on psychologically and maybe altering your physical body isn't the solution. Like if you just voice the concern, like we should have this conversation, you're called every name in the book. It's true. Beyond that, I mean, how, in our culture, anything other than the full celebration of homosexuality or gay marriage, it's classified as hate speech. You remember last year, the Mozilla CEO, he made a donation supporting Prop 8, which was just the defense of a traditional view of marriage, a private donation. And they made him resign as a result of it. An economic persecution. Even in Justice Kennedy's opinion supporting gay marriage, he acknowledges the logical need for, quote, religious organizations and persons to be given proper protection in light of the new law. Sadly, we live in a country that has greater protections for internet pornographers than the private individuals desiring to operate a business consistent with their Christian convictions and values. And you don't see a persecution coming? It will be hard for you to operate a business and hold a Christian conviction. They're gonna want you to take an incense and place it at the altar of Caesar. Will you say yes and maybe lead to poverty or no? My point is that in the coming years, standing for the truth and refusing to bend when it comes to your Christian beliefs will actually start to cost you something. And you know what? I say, bring it on. Seriously. Like what I want for America more than anything else is a revival. But you know, often the only way a revival happens is when a church is galvanized, purified, and serious about their calling. And you know how often the church needs to get to that? Like what needs to propel the church to be that? Persecution. So you bring it on. Persecution of fire will set the church on fire and we'll set the world on fire. Amen? Amen. But beyond that, there is, and we must conclude with this point, an undeniable, powerful word for the sufferer. Seriously, suffering, it may be inevitable, but it isn't indefinite. 
The Bible promises us that there will be a day when God will wipe away every tear from our eye, that there will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There will be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21 verse four. That's the end of the story. That's our future. And while the promise of a future reward might not alleviate the anguish you're experiencing today, and I know, you can hold the reality, hold to the reality that your present suffering is not without a divine purpose, that God can use it. Sweet wine demands the pressing of grapes, and a pleasant fragrance of myrrh is only released when the herb is crushed. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. Christian, never forget, Jesus never asked us to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. He can say, I know. Remember, always, the glory of the resurrection first demanded the suffering of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Finally, Jesus knows. He knows. He knows what you're going through. Whatever that might be, tribulation or persecution, trial, poverty, slander, betrayal, rejection, loss, temptation, or even the feeling that God has forsaken you. Jesus is speaking this morning through the void with two simple words meant to encourage you. I know. I know. I know what you're going through, and I know how to help you to the other side. I know. Jesus is in total control. And he's completely able and he's more than willing to be your refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, Psalms 46.1. So this morning, may it be that he who has an ear hears what the Spirit is saying to the church.